0: If you're growing a business or just thinking about launching a startup, this is definitely the podcast for you. This is Fast Forward, brought to you by Tech Manchester. We support early stage tech focused businesses. Each week, we'll dive into the issues that we know keep entrepreneurs awake at night. We'll chat to experts who will share their tips and advice on how to handle everything from raising finance, making your first hire to getting your company noticed on social media or in the press. Running a business is a roller coaster. It's exhilarating, but it's pretty damn scary at times too. We're here to help you get your business off the ground and hopefully get a better night's sleep. It's hosted by me, Patricia Keating, Executive Director at Tech Manchester. Welcome back to the Fast Forward podcast. International Women's Day falls on the 8th of March. So this month, we're dedicating the podcast to amazing women. We're going to hear all about career journeys, the challenges they've overcome, and what they're striking to achieve. These are episodes that are not to be missed. And we're kicking off March with a woman with one extraordinary CV. Marion Gamel is one of the founding members of the European marketing team at Google. She went on to kickstart Google's operations in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. She's also held C-suite positions at Eventbrite and online gaming and betting group BetsOn, and she's now founded her own successful businesses. Marion is an executive coach specializing in C-suite performance and digital companies experiencing high growth. Welcome, Marian. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. What an impressive CV. I mean, the, the brands that are in, in there are, are mind-blowing and I can't wait to hear how that journey has has taken place. Um, but before we get into your, the career side of it, I, we always like to go back to the beginning and, and look at um, the university. Obviously, um, you're, like me, not a native uh, Mancunian, Um, but perhaps a bit more glamorous um, uh, journey in terms of studying university in Paris. Um, What did you study there and um, what did you do after you left university? So I studied
1: marketing, uh, marketing and PR and advertising and in a private university. And I moved to London in 94. While I was studying, I did a lot of internships because I wanted my CV to already have some good roles and names on it. And it helped Mm -hmm. me a lot when I moved to the UK. And
0: then you went on to find your first business, is that right? Yes, that's correct.
1: So when I was in Paris interning, I I did a lot of internships in fashion houses. And one of the things that I used to do a lot of was booking models and managing them. And um, what I saw about the modeling industry, I didn't quite like. There were a lot of aspects of it are wonderful, of course, the artistic and visual parts. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's also a very tough business. So when I arrived in London, I wanted to inform young ladies who were thinking of of having a career in, in modeling, you have to put this back into context. This is mid-90s yeah. when, you know, top models were everywhere and so super, it was super famous. Supermodel
0: and it, super thin. And, exactly. Yeah.
1: And uh, and I created um, NG Magazine with Zarina Hemming and her daughter, uh, Emma Hemming-Willis. Mm-hmm. And uh, NG... Became distributed worldwide after a few years. We were selling about 45,000 copies. And the purpose of NG was dual. First of all, inform, um, you know, uh, girls about the reality of modeling, the contract and how to work with an agency and what this means and what that means. And also giving their first sort of quality coverage to up and coming talents mm-hmm. that we would find in different cities every every issue.
0: Yeah, so like giving people the opportunity to kind of showcase. Exactly. Um, that's an amazing first step for for someone that's just coming out of university. How did those opportunities um, come come by? You or how did you go
1: about finding them? I think um, would be a really good to understand. I um it was all a bit accidental to be honest. I worked for a few months in an agency in a modeling agency in London mm-hmm. and I met Zarina Hemming there. And uh, I think we had the both both of us had the same feeling about, you know, wonderful industry, but some things need to change. Yeah. And uh, and sort of naturally after a few months we thought, well, how can we inform people? This was pre-internet. Yeah. And decided to go into publishing and to give it a try, especially that at that time. Um, there was a magazine published by, I can't remember which public, big publishing house. It was a magazine called Top Model, mm-hmm. which was recycling a lot of the vintage and archive photos of the top models of the time. It had just closed down. So we knew that there was a, a good market for it. There was a huge interest from girls about what is modeling really. Yeah. And uh, and also no competition
0: Yeah, and that's uh, probably something that's the the test of time. Yes. Um,
1: So what happened to the magazine? Well, what happened is that publishing is very tough. (laughs) I didn't know that when I got into it, but it's very hard to make money, especially the first couple of years. You've got a lot of cash going out, you know, producing the shoots and printing and shipping the magazines, etc. And then you wait. And Mm -hmm. you wait and you wait for the news agent's report to come back and to tell you how many magazines they actually sold. And then you can invoice your distributor and then you wait and you wait and you wait (laughs) to get paid. So, um, yeah, cash flow was very, very tight. But it was a bit of a crash course for me Mm. in terms of running a business because I had not studied that at university at all. I had only studied the marketing side of things. And uh, and also working so young, uh, so early on in my career with teams, especially remote teams, mm-hmm. because when we did a, an issue on New York, we were not in New York all the time or Miami. Um, so it was a great learning experience, much more than a lucrative one, to yeah. be honest.
0: Um, so it's, would that have been it's quite a challenging time in terms of some of the, the things that you learned? Um, what would be some of the sort of, the tougher moments that you remember from back then and what you've taken from it?
1: Well, funnily enough, one of the things that really sort of sticks for me from that period of time is um, how people related to me. People wanted to be featured in the magazine and they were extra nice. And I knew that there was some kind of lack of authenticity coming from some of them. And it was very weird to be in that position Mm -hmm. so young with sort of people flattering you and, you know, sort of buzzing around you like a a court sort of thing, uh, knowing very well that they were after coverage after Mm. a job etc and that was a big sort of a big learning for me of how to deal with that
0: yeah i can imagine you could quite easily get kind of sucked into all of that exactly
1: or confuse you know Mm. professional interest for genuine human love yeah exactly
0: (laughs) um so the magazine you wrapped it up or
1: yes uh we wrapped it up uh in 99 um basically seeing that we were not going to make that much money. Mm-hmm. I tried to sell it but nobody was very interested. And um at that time I had tried to put it online, but it was a bit early. Too early. You, you remember the the dial up and yeah. all that and it <laughs> basically took about half an hour to download one photo. So um it was too early to put it online, but I was trying to cut costs and basically create, a, you know, a, an online magazine. Mm. But that gave me the bug for the internet and yeah. and really sort of striked my interest and I thought, OK, I think we're going to move from paper to online, or at least I am going to move from paper to online.
0: And of course, you went for, even back then, they were one of the the emerging leaders. So how did you end up then working at Google?
1: Uh, a strike of luck. So <laughs> I um, I worked for Adlink Internet Media for about three years. It was a, a, a very new advertising group in Europe, online advertising very interesting work because it was all about educating the advertising community, agencies and advertisers mm-hmm. about online opportunities. So I worked very closely with the International, uh, Internet Advertising Bureau at the time. And uh, there I worked with someone who then moved on to Google. And when I stopped working for AdLink, uh, I was still in touch with this uh, this wonderful person who told me, hey, would you be interested in working for Google? They're looking for a head of marketing for UK.
0: Well, it was back then even the time where you could go, who's Google No. Uh, uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> my parents thought that I worked for the Yellow Pages. They didn't understand <laughs> what Google was. They were not online at the time, bless them. So they told everyone that I was working for the Yellow Pages. I mean,
0: you know, it's probably the prestigious of its time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. And, and Google was a, a fantastic organisation at the time to join. I mean, it still is, but at the time we're talking about a big startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was employee number 1,400. In the UK, we were a handful of people. I think we yeah. were like 40 people. It was the first market that Google invested into outside of the US. And I had the immense opportunity to um, be hired and to work with Lorraine Tuhill, who's now the CMO of Google. Now you can imagine this woman, how inspirational and Yeah, how stretching she is. She was, it it was just amazing to work with her. I learned so much. Amazing.
0: Um, So did she give you the opportunities then to lead the teams into the sort of the marketing push into, like, India and Pakistan, or how did that opportunity come
1: about? That, again, was very accidental. I was going to India on holiday um, just for fun, having decided that Bombay was my new passion. <laughs> and every time I went to Bombay, I noticed how quickly it changed. Mm-hmm. And then one of my last trips before I made that decision in, 90, in uh, 2005, I noticed that I started seeing billboards for Yahoo, etc. So I came back to Google and start researching a little bit about what are our plans for India, what's going on. And Google at the time had big ambitious plans for China, but not for India. There was a Google office in Hyderabad, uh, which was a call center Mm -hmm. servicing U.S. advertisers. But there was no domestic operation. And I thought, "Mm, if we don't do it now, it's going to cost us a billion dollars to do it in a few years because then we'll have to fence off a lot of competition. Mm And uh, so I put a business case together, bought some market research, put a business case together. And I was very lucky because at the head of Google Europe was Nikesh Arora, who's Indian. So when I presented it, he didn't sort of fall off his chair. He sort of thought, well, yeah, of course. So between sort of mid 2005 and late 2005, um, that's when the business plan was sort of refined and mm-hmm. that's when I got the official appointment yeah and I moved to Bombay in January 2006
0: amazing i mean you keep talking about luck but there's a lot of hard work has gone into that there's a luck. lot of hard work yeah. and
1: i think you're absolutely right i don't even like the word luck i don't know why i use it i think it's more about uh, having your eyes open mm-hmm. and and also being supported because to be honest um Lorraine was amazing in that, you know, if you have an amazing manager who's mm-hmm. really pushing you, she was going to lose me, she was going to lose a, an important headcount, mm-hmm. um, yet she totally understood, She's, uh, you know, I said to yeah. her, I need to move to India, I feel like personally I need to live there for a couple of years, so either it's going to be with Google or I'm going Somebody to do else. it my way, My way, and, and she said, well, I'm not happy to lose you as part of my team, but on the other hand... Europe is getting stronger. We need to lend our talent to other regions in the world, and uh, and she said, "Yeah, I can't blame you. I mean, of course, of course, you need to go to India."
0: Yeah, I think even just as listening to you describe it and even thinking about the world where there wasn't Google in it, it's just <laughs> do you know what I mean. Yeah, it's like oh, and like fourteen years ago there wasn't Google in India. Like it's you know it's hard to get your head around.
1: Uh, absolutely.
0: But so you had you had had um, a sort of few sort of personal experiences, um, holiday and spend some time in India. But living there must have been a completely different um, experience and quite eye opening for you. Um, what was that like working in it then starting to work in that very different culture? What kind of things did you learn? How was that for you, you know, as a woman in, in a new culture like
1: that? Sure. Yeah. Um... Well, you know, you always fantasize about how different you're going to be when you go abroad. You know, you, you sort of fantasize about this Marion 2.0 better version of yourself, that you're going to be doing all the things that you should do, but you never do and, and all that. And I think one of my big learning is that I am who I am. And yes, I'm evolving, but on the other hand, I'm not going to turn into someone I'm not just because I end up in a country with, you know, hot weather and some palm trees. Yeah. So I think that was a big learning. Thankfully, I la- had time to learn Hindi uh, during like a 6 months crash course before I, I moved. And that helped a lot, mm-hmm. even though a lot of people speak very good English in India. Yeah. But still, for everyday life, you know, dealing with when you go and buy food or whatever, or yeah. dealing with a taxi driver. And it it's respectful. And it's respectful. People really appreciated my effort in broken English, as we call it. <laughs> um, the first Should months, I ask you to do Um, My first three months were very Mm -hmm. tough. I -hmm. remember crying a lot in the evening because I was seeing things in the street that I did not understand, you know, like people with no arms and no legs Mm -hmm. and, you know, that sort of thing. And for my poor little European sort of background, it was very hard to take in and also to understand how it works because you have... I had European reflexes of saying, oh, well, this guy has no legs and no arms or whatever. I'm going to see if I can provide him with uh, something so he can move around. And then I spoke to people and they said to me, well, you know, he's a beggar, he lives in the street. If you give him some device, he's going to get bitten up so that the device is stolen. So what you're going to do is you're going to actually... Put more pain on him? Yeah, exactly. It's going to be even harder for him. So this whole thing of understanding what you're seeing and how you can impact it, which may be very different from how you would impact it in Europe, was a big learning curve. As well as um, sort of taking the time to see how people react and how people work and function and, and accepting because after a few months, I thought, right, okay, it's very tough. But it's also exhilarating, and the reality is that I'm not going to teach Indian people how to leave. They know how to do that very well. Mm-hmm. So either I adapt and embrace their ways, or I go home. Yeah, and uh, and I decided to take that time to learn about Indian culture and way of working uh, instead of you know change, it. changing changing <clears throat> stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. fighting it. And then, what about um, as a woman in a senior leadership role? Um, in like, I'm not. Can you educate us on sort of what Indian culture is with regards to how they view women and those kinds of roles? How do you operate or how do you work
1: effectively in those? Yeah. So internally at Google, it was absolutely accepted that someone, a female, would be head of marketing for for that region. Um, there was no problem at all. But externally, we we did face some challenges. I remember a meeting in Delhi at a potential co-marketing partner where I arrived and everyone was in the room and we waited and we waited. And I was thinking, oh God, I have to take a flight back to Bombay in a couple of hours. Why Mm -hmm. isn't the meeting starting? So eventually I asked and they said, well, we're waiting for the head of marketing of Google. And I was like, it's me. (laughs) I've been in the room for 20 (laughs) minutes with every one of you guys. And the look of disappointment in their face, like, oh, my God, they sent a woman Mm -hmm. who's not even Indian. What is that? So I learned from that. And moving forward, most of my important meetings, I would attend with a male Indian colleague Mm -hmm. who would do most of the talking. So we would do a brief session before the meeting. So we knew what we wanted, what we were ready to negotiate and I was kind of there just in case, and you know, pretending to be a bit of a secretary kind of thing, and that worked. I used to receive mail to Mister Marion Gamel because people could not <laughs> accept the fact that the, the a woman a could woman. be in that position. Yeah,
0: or they just thought you funny. You're a man with a funny name. Yeah, you touched on there that. Um, that it was about being a woman and not Indian as well? Was that in it? Like having Westerners?
1: That was a huge mm-hmm. issue. Um, at the time, uh, I, I don't know what the situation is now, but there was a, a political party called Shiv Sena. Uh, they're very traditional, very conservative. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they had a problem with the fact that it was not an Indian person at the end of the, you know, as, as mm-hmm. part of the leadership group. Uh, and eventually they attacked our office even thankfully we were all in a conference in hyderabad none mm-hmm. of us was there but they came in to destroy the google office because they didn't agree with google they didn't yeah. agree with a woman a non indian person being in charge yeah um so yeah which must
0: have been quite upsetting even if you weren't there
1: it was very upsetting because they took the they they went for the wrong office they didn't damage our office they went for the wrong one next door oh, no. so it was even worse um, you know, we could have coped with our office being ransacked, but for another company to get so, it in yeah. our name was terrible. And then we worked from home for a couple of months, all of us. Yeah. And eventually got a new office with more Safety. security, etc. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a that was a reality I was not sort mm. of forecasting.
0: I suppose back then Google wouldn't have had the um, the pre- the precedent or the um, the. Um, They weren't the leader at that point or they weren't the scale that they are now where they could perhaps influence better behaviour with some of its partners because your goal is to grow your business and you need these people around you to be able to do it.
1: Absolutely, you're very right. I mean, Yahoo was at least as strong as Google, if not stronger when Mm -hmm. I arrived in India in terms of brand. They were doing a lot of wonderful locally relevant things with Bollywood actors and cricketers. Mm -hmm. So we were definitely just a player when I arrived. We were not the player.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, now let's move on to um, some of the commentary and things that you um, share because you're you're incredibly um, prolific in terms of your writing. Um, in one of your blogs, you have said that um, employers should ignore gender when hiring. Um, well, would, could you explain to us a little bit about that and what you meant by that?
1: Well. Because I think that at the end of the day, a company is a commitment towards investors, towards the leaders, towards people who have put everything on the table and taken the risk. And I think that this company and its employees deserve the best, whatever shape the best comes in. Mm. So I don't tend to agree when people, when I hear things like, oh, we need a woman. Yeah. No, you need the best. Yeah. But my point is remove the names from the CVs and have a look for the best and then when this person turns up for the interview it may be male female transgender who cares you yeah. know you're interviewing one of the best
0: yeah and did you apply that during your time in in google is that something that you applied there absolutely i would
1: i would never hire a woman just for the sake of working with a woman or giving a chance to a woman i try to hire the best it just turns out that even in india even at in that time a lot of very very strong uh, professional women were mm-hmm. available, and and I had I was very lucky to work with them. Yeah, but I would uh, luckily enough in Indian uh, the names sometimes don't mean anything to me, so I wouldn't even know if I'm looking at a male or female <laughs> name anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, I understand what you mean. Um, so you you led the team in India, and then you moved on, pushed through to um, other. Countries. So around. yeah,
1: since I was wearing this sort of explorer hat, mm-hmm. uh, Google asked me to look after Middle East and Africa. Uh, at that time, Middle East was predominantly Egypt, where you had the volume of consumers, mm-hmm. Dubai, where most of the advertising decisions were made for the region, mm-hmm. and then for Africa, it was really a focus on South Africa because that was like the first country that um, started having good internet penetration. Mm-hmm. And which the whole of the continent was looking at in terms of, oh, South Africa is doing this, maybe we should go in that direction, etc. So uh, it was absolutely wonderful to work on that region, the variety of, you know, the diversity of of cultures and approaches and... um, Again, very steep learning curve. Each time? Yeah, each time. Did you live in each of the countries that you opened? No, I used to I used to rent an apartment in mm-hmm. Joburg. I used to go like three weeks on, three weeks off sort of thing. And then Dubai and Cairo, I would just visit and stay in a hotel. Yeah. And But my base officially was London because it was very helpful to be on the ground in the headquarter, in, in the EMEA headquarter, to get things done. So I found out that actually... Um, uh, being based in London was working well for me and then visiting those countries mm-hmm. and having like a few weeks of pushing through with a lot of local meetings, etc. Yeah.
0: Um, when you listen to that, it sounds incredibly ga- glamorous and I'm sure there was a many exciting moments, but that level of travel and intensity can take its toll. How did you look after yourself during that period?
1: Um I didn't. I just worked very hard <laughs> during that period, to be honest. There was so yeah. much to do and so much at stake. Uh, the whole looking after yourself was not really uh, part of... Part, yeah, it was not really on my radar, which I paid for dearly uh, a few years later. Um, but you're right, it sounds so glamorous on paper. Even when I went to um, San Francisco to the Google headquarter, you know a lot of my friends would be like, oh, you know, life's all right for you, isn't yeah. it? You're going to San Francisco. But the reality is that you're in your hotel room eating Caesar salad every night, watching CNN, falling asleep way too early, waking up way too early, being exhausted all day. Yeah. And then, you know, four days Doing later, <laughs> you do it again in the, the other way.
0: Yeah. And you're
1: supposed to be in London, fresh eye in the morning on Monday and performing again. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very intense. And how did you pay for it later on? I ended up having a burnout uh, and that's why I left Google. Uh, I had no intention of leaving Google. Mm -hmm. So after Middle East of Africa, I was looking after Eastern Europe, still based in London. And I realized that, um, you know, Google was still Google, but I was just not fitting in it anymore. Mm -hmm. There was something that, um, what is the expression about the rubber not hitting the road or something like that? Yeah, that's how it felt. And um, at the time I was being coached um, because when you're getting ready for a promotion at Google, you would get coaching support. And it was a godsend to to have a coach to bounce ideas with because mm-hmm. it, it took me almost a year to realize that it was time for me to stop working at Google, mm-hmm. sort of regroup a little bit, understand what I'm about, what I've learned. And that's when I discovered the huge benefits of taking a break. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I suppose when you think about well-being, it's so topical now in mental health. But even even two years ago, even three years ago, it wasn't as prolific as it is. Absolutely. Now. I
1: didn't even know about burnout at the time. I remember yeah, that. that it was that happening to I, you. Exactly. I was suffering. I was unwell. I was demotivated and sad all the time. Um, but I didn't know the word burnout. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah there's been a lot of progress on, on awareness about mental health
0: yeah and knowing knowing and that you can put a name on it and that it's okay mm, exactly um you mentioned the coach there um what impact did they have in terms of you being able to come to that awareness so that self realization that that's what you needed to do next and how much would you put rate that
1: experience well i am um Uh, even though I was coached to start with on a professional level so that I reached the next level of seniority, um, very early on my coach uh, understood that we needed to look at the whole of Marion, not just the professional one, but also personal. So she asked my manager if it was okay to also cover personal stuff in the Mm -hmm. coaching sessions. And, uh, And it's through that work that eventually I realized that I was not going to give my best to Google anymore and Mm. I was was not at my best and uh, I didn't even know what my best was anymore. So it was really time to take a break, not to look for another job.
0: You were still just in the middle of... Just exactly. constantly doing without even taking any time. To exactly.
1: And, and and like being unable to make decisions, uh, you know, seeing like, you know, turning right scary and turning left horrible. And you're like <laughs> at the fork <laughs> thinking, okay, my options are terrible. <laughs> I'm uh, just going to stay in bed. <laughs> exactly. So that's what coaching really <laughs> helped with. <laughs> uh, and I remember this amazing exercise she made me do where um, we had like a red scarf on a one seat and a blue scarf on the other seat. And the exercise was that when I sat on uh, one chair, I would just speak about pros. And if I want to talk about cons, I would sit on the other chair. And the advantage of making it physical like that is that you don't interrupt your trail of thoughts anymore because you can only talk about one thing when you're on one chair. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me to sort of discover my whole narrative about the pros and then about the cons and come back to the pros and come back to the cons and eventually have a narrative that was less messy than in my head. Mm. Does that help you talk it out mm. to yourself? Exactly. So you, you decided to move on from Google? So I took a, a, a almost one-year sabbatical. That yeah. was the plan. Went to live uh, with friends in Marrakesh, uh, you know, got a tan, got a dog, and nice. uh, looked after myself. Um, but after a probably seven, eight months, I realized that I needed to work. I need the intellectual sort of stimulation. I mean, not only financially, I could not be on sabbatical forever, but also intellectually, I realized that I really needed the, the work. And I remember it's my friends who told me that because um, one day I was doing a graph about our usage of toilet roll and how it had evolved (laughs) over the month. And I showed it to them and they looked at the graph on Excel and they were like, Marion, you need to go back to work.
0: Do you still have the graph? No, I don't, but I should have kept it. And framed it or something yeah. and had it in your bathroom. <laughs> exactly.
1: So that's how I knew that I needed to I needed a project and I need to throw myself into something yeah. again. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? So um luckily I met someone at Alexander Mann, and mm-hmm. uh they offered me an acting CMO position, which was a very nice, comfortable way of getting back into London life and mm-hmm. landing back on my feet. Um, This was just a a six or eight months appointment until they found a a permanent CMO. But um, it sort of made my uh, return to London, yeah, very comfortable, feel very secure and allowed me to start networking with people and eventually meet someone at Eventbrite.
0: Yeah. Um, That whole uh, initial stage, though, despite having that comfort of a a role like you and a place that was welcoming, you still must have had some nerves or, you know, kind of concerns about that first step back into that world, given the
1: impact it had on you? It it was, especially that Mm. since it was just a a short term appointment, I didn't allow myself to get a house yet and get all my furniture. Everything was in storage. Mm -hmm. So I lived with a friend, uh, which was a big learning curve as well, because kind of, you know, in your Late thirties to live with oh, a, a no. girlfriend is very, very weird. <laughs> it's okay for a couple of days, exactly. But, <laughs> and then you need your space. So I lived with her for almost a year, and uh, and that, um, yeah, that that helped at the same time because yeah. I was not feeling alone, or you know, I, I always had someone home to uh, share any concerns or anything like yeah. that. And eventually, it's when I met Evan Bright and I got appointed at uh, as a VP of marketing for EMEA, that. I allowed myself to become an adult again and rented a house, etc.
0: Yeah, yeah. So then you spent some time at Eventbrite and yeah. also uh, Betson. Yeah. And um, But that, but that's not what you're doing now. So that's how did that did transition through there?
1: So I mentioned this wonderful experience being coached at Google. And then in 2015, when I left Eventbrite, I thought, "Ooh, clever me. I'm going to launch a marketing agency. And the idea was CMO On Demand. Mm -hmm. Whereas I met a couple of, uh, you know, a few founders uh, thanks to my Google network and um, asked them, you know, what's the state of fare with your marketing department? How do you go about it? And all of them would hire a couple of uh, very young, very enthusiastic specialists, Mm -hmm. um, but they would not have the budget or the need for a CMO with 15 years experience. Occasionally, they would have a big marketing question. And then they would need someone with my experience, but just for a day or a meeting Mm -hmm. or, and that's the service that I sort of offered of saying, you know, I can have a look at marketing return on investment with you. I can create a strategy with your team. I can make sure you hire the right talent. Mm -hmm. Just use me whenever you need. Yeah. And uh, although everyone was very enthusiastic about this offering saying, yes, this is exactly what tech companies tech startups need
0: yeah nobody st- actually wanted
1: it well they still don't have any money <laughs>
0: yes, exactly <laughs> to pay for it so nobody wanted they do it. want
1: it but they can't but, want it. but the founders i kept meeting were like <laughs> yeah. um yeah great offering marion wonderful idea but uh, i don't need it thank you although i would love you to coach my cto cpo cco yeah. and i was thinking but well, that's odd i'm not a coach i'm not mm-hmm. even trained and i kept telling them that and they were like oh you'll be fine. (laughs) So I started completely by accident without any accreditation or qualification to coach um, C-level people in fast-growing tech companies, uh, and I loved it. And um, and then a a headhunter introduced me to Betson, where there was a, a new sea C-level person in place. And as the CEO explained to me, this person needs to grow into bigger shoes. All the mm-hmm. skills are there, the intellect and etc. But um, this person needs to understand what it is to be C-level. So I coached this person for about six months until... Betsen invited me to Malta to have a look around. I thought, oh, that's nice. Why are they inviting me to Malta? Um, and they invited me because they made me a, a, an offer to be their chief marketing officer. Mm-hmm. And even though at that time I was already thinking of becoming a coach full time and going back to uni, etc., I thought, let's have a last great CMO gig. <laughs> it was very different from yeah. uh, from Google and Eventbrite. We're talking big budget, a team of 200 people. Uh, you know, twenty seven brands to look after globally. Um, I had a blast. Yeah, it was really, really good. And I think my my break and I, and I keep on talking about breaks because um, I I value my breaks as much as I value my actual experience. I think there's something that happens when you reboot mm-hmm. for a few months. Um, but I remember taking a bit of a break uh, between my CMO on demand, um, that was not on demand, actually, that nobody wanted, and my, <laughs> the start of my uh, appointment at Betson. And during that time, I was thinking, OK, how am I going to approach this differently? What is new about me? Yeah. And at the risk of sounding completely cheesy, I thought, you know what, I'm going to lead with love I'm going to love my team and look after them and mm-hmm. grow them and make them do things that they'll be so proud of that will get them the next amazing job. I'm going to love that company and look after it and the shareholders make sure that, you know, we do everything so that they get their fair share back of investment mm-hmm. love my sea level colleagues, tap into their skills, support them and that was really my frame of mind when I started betson which was very different from before I never had that sort of feeling of I need to look after not just me but you know what's around mm. me my environment
0: but that's all come from the experience you know you wouldn't have known. To think of those things in your, you know, in any of your Google journey, because it you hadn't experienced it. Probably.
1: Um, and probably when I was younger, I was thinking more in terms of what's in it for me. Yeah. You know, sort of grabbing, being insecure. Um, whereas uh, with a few more years and wrinkles and experience, <laughs> I got into the bets and roll completely differently, yeah. thinking what's in it for them. Yeah. You Your know, success is there. What am I bringing to the table? Yep. How am I going to make a difference in this company for a few years when I'm there?
0: So you had an incredible time at Betson, but you still had that coaching
1: passion. Absolutely. So you've
0: returned to it.
1: So I returned to it. So what happened is that um, I met my partner at Betson and we both left around the same time. And Betson very generously had already offered to pay for my first semester of coaching uni. Uh, as part of training and development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, let's throw myself into that, study, case studies, start coaching people. And then I did a second semester and um, and then I did a third semester <laughs> and sort of started piling on the accreditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I really like because when I left my CMO role, I thought about what is it that I really loved in that role? And there were two things. The first one was... Um, working on the strategy, like the well-being of the company overall. And I thought that box I can tick by doing non-executive advisory roles uh, and still have that sort of conversation. And then the other thing that I absolutely adored was helping people to blossom and to become like the version they never even Mm -hmm. thought that they were going to be. And I remember feeling immense joy and pride when I would see someone you know, doing something amazing that none of us ever thought that was going to happen. And I thought, that's the box that I'm going to take with coaching, help people, help executives blossom.
0: Yeah, be the best versions of themselves. Exactly. And now you do that. That's now what you do. And now I do that. Yes. For quite a few more brands as well, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've been working with um, a lot of different brands, um, Google, Twitter, uh zava the online uh, health uh, company uh survey monkey dropbox um property finder so my clients are scattered all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very grateful. That I'm starting to get clients in uh, in, in the region in <laughs> yeah. the north of England. You don't want to go back to traveling all the time, n- n- uh, no. And and uh, and I do all my coaching on Zoom, so it doesn't really matter where people are yeah. based. But it's nice because the clients I have here, at least some of them, I see them face to face, which is lovely. Yeah, because it can be a bit isolating as well, you know, to work from home, even though you're talking on Zoom. Yeah, it's not the same thing. There's no team mm. around you, uh, so it's an adaptation. game again but this was the right time for me to do it because my partner got a job in uh, Manchester Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure that I could find a job in Manchester so I thought let's it's time for the shift and I see it as my second career the one that's going to keep me busy for the next sort of 20 years
0: yeah and it's uh, technology that's enabling that you know without technology you wouldn't have that kind of reach without having to, to travel absolutely um so what do you do for your clients in a bit more detail? What is the you know do for them?
1: Well, I tend to specialize in what I would call the um ninety percent there, as in someone who is brilliant on many levels at what he or she does, but there is just that little thing, that little piece of sand in the machine that's not working very well. And usually it's absolutely nothing to do with skills. I don't do training. Uh, or even intellectual intelligence, uh, it's it's more to do with emotional intelligence very often. It's about little shifts in behaviors and approaches and the way of seeing the, the company. Um, because one thing that's common to all tech companies is that they change into something they were not mm-hmm. very quickly. <laughs> you know, one day you walk in and you don't even recognize what company you're in a lot of founders have that sort of feeling of saying, my God, two years ago we were five people and now yeah. there's like 100 people in this room. What happened? So it's about adapting to that change, adapting to the new challenges and helping executives um, becoming comfortable in that constant flow that we live in now mm-hmm. that is here to stay. I think you know things are changing all the time at a very fast pace. And helping leaders not just adapt, but more like be ready for any change that's coming their way. Because there's increasingly a need to sort of wipe out everything that's on the board and start from scratch again. Mm. And and uh, that's what I do. I help executives be comfortable with that ambiguity, with that agility, with the fact that what their team needed two years ago, they need something different now. What the company needed... Uh, six months ago is different now, and that's fine because they have the skills. I'm just there to help with self confidence, communication, behavior.
0: Yeah. And um, so, what is your vision for the future of the workplace? What does the the modern workplace of the future look like to you, or what does a great one look like to you?
1: I. I recently read an article about Generation Flux, which I really liked because I think it gave me much more food for thought than just the term millennials, which Mm -hmm. is a bit sort of age-limiting.
0: And I think I'm a millennial. That can't be right.
1: I'm definitely not a millennial. (laughs) Born in the 70s, I missed that I'm born
0: in the 70s. Does that not make me a millennial?
1: No, I think we're Gen Y. Oh, are we? All right. Yeah. Okay. Great generation, by the way. But, yes, um, the best. <laughs> and I think that um, millennials are a bit limiting. Generation flux is what I'm focusing on, really. It's that generation who is completely comfortable with the fact that everything changes permanently. Hmm. And they're even expecting it. And as a result, they can think very differently from the older generation because it's not about tenure It's not uh, about having a role for a long time. It's about learning and being ready for the future and and feeling that they're in a company that is welcoming that the fact of bringing a brand new idea and and exploring it. Yeah. Um, That's what I'm really having pleasure with.
0: Um, We always like to wrap up the podcast with um, some advice and um, I've, Thoroughly listened. Loved listening to your uh, story today. It's so fascinating. And I can understand the challenges as well as the joy that you've had through that career. Um, Although this is for International Women's Day, I guess this advice is for anyone. But for those people that are maybe in those middle management or sort of the start of their C-suite careers, what would be your advice for them um, who are thinking about taking that next step? What could they be doing?
1: I think my first advice, which is sort of counterproductive since we're talking about careers, but is to take breaks, like solid breaks. No, I think that's great advice. And and I think that... uh, (laughs) I should listen to it. (laughs) For a start, there's no judgment anymore about taking a break. I mean, when I came back from my break in Morocco and I said to people openly, yeah, I took a year off, I was tired. They're like, they looked at my CV and they were like, yeah, no wonder you're tired. (laughs) Um, So there's no judgment. We're very lucky for that in the UK that there's no judgment about taking a a break. Mm. And I started noticing the benefit of taking a break with my colleagues who had babies because they would go on maternity leave. And then I kind of knew what was going on during maternity leave, you know, sleep deprivation, isolation. It's not like you go on holiday. No. Yet they would come back to work. And have a completely different approach. They were so efficient. They knew they had to leave at like 4.30 every day, yeah. no compromise. Um, but they managed to be extremely efficient and extremely clear about what was important in prioritization. And that is something that they learned while not doing their job. Yeah. And I thought how interesting that... Yeah, taking a break like that, even though it's a very tiring break and very challenging, yeah. changes something else in your life, such as the way to work. Yeah, And then I experienced it um, first when I left Google because at Google I was senior, but I was certainly not C-suite. And then I got my first C-suite break when I came back from the break. And again, um, you know, I got the Betson uh, opportunity because I was on a break doing something different. Yeah, So I would say... Um, It's a bit like relationships in the same way that I would say to a girlfriend who gets out of a a three years relationship, don't date immediately. You know, (laughs) find yourself a little bit, you know, take time for things to settle and to find out who you are, what's important to you. Reboot. I would say the same thing about a job. Don't stop a job on a Friday and start a new one on Monday. Mm -hmm. It's um, you need a break between jobs. You need to reboot. And I know it sounds easier said than done, but you can plan for this financially. Um, you know, if you were made redundant, for instance, you're likely to have a package that may uh, allow you to take a few months off yeah. and grab that opportunity because those few months are going to be like a crash MBA sort of thing in propelling your career to the next level when yeah. you're back.
0: It's open yourself up to new experiences. I mean, your whole... Career journey started off because you like to go on holidays to Bombay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's where really that, that sea change happened for you.
1: Yeah. And uh, and I think that's, we try to sort of compas- compartmentalise. I'm not even sure that is that, an English That's word. a word. That's that a is, word, okay. yeah. Um, work. I'm obviously an, Eng- uh, an English
0: uh, language expert. <laughs>
1: so um, work versus private. But the yeah. reality is that you are one person. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's what a break does. It's the moment when you reconciliate all your roles, you know, the mom, the professional, the wife, the sister. Yeah. That's the moment when you can be everything and sort of find yourself again and Revisit your values, and make sure that you know what you want. Yeah. My values have changed. I used to look for the shiniest product or the shiniest brand. And now I know that if I went back to a corporate world, I would look at people. Yeah. That's all I would look at. Because I know that I'm not bothered about the product, but I'm very bothered about who I'm gonna spend ten hours a day with.
0: Yeah. Marion, thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your journey with us. Um, for any of you who are thinking about taking that next step, it sounds like taking a break might give you that better night's sleep. Thank
1: you. Thank you.